Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion and I'm your host. The big news on the continent this week is the decision by Kenya's Supreme Court on the annulment of last month's presidential election. This week's episode is coming out a bit later than planned because we switched the schedule order so that we could feature a conversation with Dr. Kathleen Klaus on the elections and on this recent court decision. Most of our links roundup focuses on the Kenyan election, but let's start with a few other things we're reading and learning from the continent this week. OK Africa recently published a great listicle of films from the African diaspora to look out for at the Toronto International Film Festival September 7th through the 17th. Even if, like me, you're not going to be in Toronto for the festival, the OK Africa Post has trailers of what looks like some really great films. The first film listed, Felicite, was shot in Kinshasa and directed by a Senegalese filmmaker, Alain Gomi. There's also Five Fingers Marseille, a neo-Western film shot entirely in the Eastern Cape in South Africa. Since romantic comedies are my guilty pleasure, I was also happy to see Nollywood rom-com The Royal Hibiscus Hotel in the Toronto Festival lineup. There's a new version of Big Brother Africa, and it's not a TV show. Yomi Kazim of Courts Africa reported last week on the growing trend of African governments requesting user information from global tech companies. For example, Facebook received requests from 18 African governments last year, including Egypt, Sudan, and South Africa making the most requests for user data. Kazim's piece draws on a recently published policy brief that summarizes African government requests for user data as well as requests to remove content. Before I transition to my conversation with Dr. Kathleen Klaus on the Kenyan elections, I wanted to offer some context about the recent court decision, much of which I draw from uncharacteristically excellent reporting on Kenyan politics in the New York Times. On Friday, Kenya's Supreme Court nullified the outcome of the presidential election. To be clear, the down-ballot races were not appealed nor judged in this case, and the results of those elections will stand. What this ruling means is that Kenya will have to hold, within the next 60 days, fresh elections for the presidency. More broadly, this historic court decision pointed to flaws in the transmission of vote tallies that, quote, affected the integrity of the poll. At a hastily arranged get-together of political scientists studying Kenyan politics Friday evening, many of us talked about how the results from parallel vote tabulations, as well as public opinion polls leading up to the election, showed incumbent President Uhuru Kenyatta would likely win. Few analysts suspect election irregularities had any impact on the ultimate outcome, declaring him the winner. So why did the court annul the election? Nairobi-based political analyst Nanjala Nyabala has a great piece in Al Jazeera arguing that the procedural failures in the electoral process, quote, undermined the core of Kenyan democracy, end quote. Nyabala points out how important this case is more broadly in that it reaffirms judicial independence in a context where many scholars and analysts think of the presidency as wielding almost all political power. I also want to steer our listeners to initial reflections on the court's decision from Dr. Ken Apollo, the Georgetown University professor who chatted with us before the election in episode 23. Particularly helpful to listeners who are less familiar with the Kenyan electoral context, Apollo's post explains how the transmission of results from polling and tallying centers was supposed to work, including explaining what a Form 34A is and why it matters and why you're hearing about it in all of these various reports. Apollo also raises questions about whether elections will actually be held in the next two months, 
given the likelihood that opposition candidate Ryla Odinga will want changes in the Electoral Commission before the fresh election. Finally, there's a post by writer Helen Epstein in the New York Review of Books that came out before the court decision. Epstein chronicles in her piece the many irregularities leading up to the election, including the mysterious torture and death of the Election Commission's IT manager, Chris Msando, as well as questionable procurement practices for printing ballot papers. We'll post links to the things we've mentioned here, as well as bonus links to other things we found interesting on Monday morning to our website, ufahamuafrica.com. In this week's episode, we speak with Dr. Kathleen Klaus, visiting assistant professor of government at Wesleyan University. Dr. Klaus earned her PhD at the University of Wisconsin and spent the last two years as a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University. Her research examines elections, violence, and land rights, and she is currently finishing a book manuscript that draws from extensive research in Kenya. We talk about the recent election in Kenya, including Friday's Supreme Court announcement, and we talk more broadly about elections and violence in Africa. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining us on Ufahamu Africa. Given your expertise on elections in Kenya, I wanted to talk with you about last month's election. And, you know, I just think, given the timing of this interview, right, the day after uh, the announcement by Kenya's Supreme Court that the presidential elections were going to be nullified, I feel like we just have to start there. So um, on this decision that fresh presidential elections have to be held, I wonder if you were surprised by this and what ideas you have about what our listeners should be looking to or listening to to kind of keep in tune with what's happening and 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 think about what will happen. Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I was very surprised when I woke up to this news in the morning. I think everyone uh, in Kenya and across, uh, across the world following Kenyan elections was really surprised. Um, so I think the question that we've all been grappling with is what does this mean? Right. And what does this mean for Kenya's democracy? Right. Um, so in terms of, of things that, that we should be thinking about, we really first have to wait to hear what the judges ruling, what the content of their, their ruling was. Right. Um, because they made the announcement, but they didn't post the opinion, right? So part of this, there's a there's a bit of a risk in, in holding out too long. So the more that you keep people waiting and wondering, well, what what was what, what did that, that ruling contain, right. it heightens the level of anxiety. Yeah. First reaction is, is certainly surprise. Right. Um, and, I, and I say surprise because the opposition in Kenya hasn't had a lot of victories. Right. So this is a country where the incumbency and the incumbent party has just continually won. And it's one reason, well, that's, you know, perhaps redundant, but has had so much power and seems to be consolidating power. Right. And so I think many people, even opposition supporters, kind of had given up on this case and saw the members of, of NASA going after this case but had pulled away a bit and mm-hmm. had even pulled away from really participating in politics and participating in the democratic project in Kenya. Right. And so I think that in one one way that we can think about this as a good move is that it does bring members of the opposition. And when I say members, I'm talking about ordinary citizens. Right. I'm not talking 
about the NASA elites. I'm saying this this reinvigorates people who have been in the opposition right. and in, um, energizes them once again. Now, I don't know how long that's going to last. Like, maybe right. this is just going to be a week or two weeks until inevitably Uhuru does win again. Right. But at least at least there is that that sense that there is hope, that there is possibility um, when it, and that the power doesn't lie solely with the executive branch. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened before the Supreme right. Court ruling that has all of us stunned. Um, when you were, so you were in Kenya for the elections and leading up to the elections. And I wondered, you know, about your exposure to coverage of, of the election in both the U.S. and in Kenya. How would you compare these two perspectives, the American and Kenyan media perspectives on the election? So this is a very controversial topic, and the role of the international media in Kenya mm-hmm. is one that I think, and, and not just the U.S. media, right. um, but the, I, I think it's generally referred to as just the international media or the, the CNN, right. is a, plays a really important role in coverage of Kenyan news, and although very contested. And so what was interesting is that in, and so I'm going to divert the question a little bit, is that right in the few days after the announcement of Uhuru Kenyatta as the president, there there was significant police crackdown, police brutality. So the nature of the violence was mostly police cracking down on opposition protesters. Right. And there was this hesitance from the domestic media mm-hmm. to cover that violence. And I understood where that was coming from because you, we, no one wanted to say, oh, Kenya's descending into chaos. And right. Another election violence. Marred by violence. Marred by violence. So yeah. everyone, especially on the Kenya side, was trying to avoid those headlines because right. it wasn't marred by violence. A lot of things went pretty well. Yeah. And yet, and yet there was horrific human rights violations. Right. And so there was this moment, this kind of ethical dilemma on the part of both the international press and the domestic press of, well, what, how are we covering this? Who should be covering this? Right. And so I I noticed that a lot of, you know, reporters, whether it was from the the Guardian, New York Mm -hmm. Times, were in this position where they really were having to defend themselves. And I think they were right in defending themselves and saying, well, we, someone needs to, you know, a child was just killed. Five yes. people were just killed. Yes. And I might not get to decide what this headline is because it's often not up to them. Right. Which is a problem. Right. Um, so it's it's this difficult spot. But I'd say that in general, you know, Kenyan journalists are increasingly good at pushing back and, and calling out on the international media when they are, you know, going towards these headlines of kind of these... These Sensationalist takes on. But then we just have to be careful and say, well, there are these moments when perhaps... Sensationalism is warranted. It's not that it's we don't want to call it sensationalism, but that if you go too far in the opposite direction of not wanting to cover important events because you're wanting to avoid that, mm-hmm. those those particular headlines, mm-hmm. that's also a problem. It is. So, relatedly, I wonder, you know, because this isn't the first Kenyan election you've, you've witnessed, I wonder have the perspectives or the the difference in perspectives between Kenyan and international media Mm -hmm. changed much since the last election? And I guess I'm wondering 
if social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter have led to any bit of convergence between these two groups of media? I'll answer that in a, in a bit of a back way by saying that perhaps journalists from both sides have lost control over the narrative Um, in the sense that because Facebook and WhatsApp and Twitter Uh um, it's it's really a democratized platform um, what I see happening is mainstream media on both whether we're talking about the Daily Nation, the Standard in Kenya or we're talking about the New York Times or the Guardian they're not necessarily the authoritative voices anymore. Right. Now we have the people or we have the Russians right. <laughs> or some, whomever it might be right. who's producing news as well. So now these mainstream outlets have to compete with that. So yeah. there's almost this outbidding effect mm-hmm. um, on one hand that mm-hmm. can um, polarize news even more and send, you know, drive people to create these more sensationalized headlines mm-hmm. um, but they really you do see that they're not the only ones who are producing and making news anymore and, and so, do you think that's 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 different from the last election do you think that there's more you know just um, more people talking about these things on social media this election than the last election so the news organizations are kind of competing for for eyes on the screen certainly I think just in the last since 2013 there's just been an ever greater shift to more people using and getting their news from WhatsApp, from from Facebook, from Twitter. Um, I asked a question about how do you get your news, one of those generic political science questions right. that we all ask in our survey about how they, people get their news. And, and this was in Kuala where literacy rates are low, but very few people are reading mainstream newspapers. Um, they are listening to the radio and they have, you know, a adolescent child or someone in the household who's getting their news through WhatsApp uh-huh. or SMS. Uh-huh. Who knows where that news source is coming from? Right. It's often, you know, a, a party member who's has some sort of text message that's... And so in that sense, that was happening in 2013. But the more urban areas you go to where more people have smartphones, that's when you have this proliferation of particular pieces of information that are um, produced by the campaign, the party offices, NGOs, um, or other questionable entities. Yeah, so... Other potentially nefarious actors, who knows? Right, so... Now, you're currently working on a book project on political violence, something unfortunately not foreign to Kenya, even in in these most recent elections. How would you characterize the violence surrounding the August 2017 elections? Okay, so I'd say we saw four main types of violence. One was the police violence that, that many of us, that, that was most apparent um, in, the, in the immediate days following the announcements of the elections. Um, so this is your classic, the state using the, the power of the state to crack down on the opposition. Right. Um, and this goes back, I mean, this has a long legacy in Kenya, and it has a long legacy in most authoritarian regimes. Um, another form that political scientists haven't really studied is this 
party violence, primary violence. Uh-huh. Um, so this is kind of more, it's more scuffles and um, low-level violence happening within the, the parties themselves. Okay. So it's not necessarily ethnic. Right. And it's not inter-party, it's intra-party. Right. Um, and so it's jockeying for positions and using violence and intimidation targeted at particular low-level political party candidates. And the two that I think are most worrying and that we need to to theorize more deeply, especially in in East Africa and Africa broadly, is what typically gets characterized as terrorism. And so this is al-Shabaab. And what's been, a lot of us have seen the the coverage of Laikipia, which has characterized, sometimes it's characterized as climate change, environmental conflict, agriculturalists versus pastoralists. So there's this long, beautiful piece in the New York Times Mm -hmm. um, that characterized it as a outcome of climate change. Totally skirt, completely skirting the fact that this is really political violence. Right. Um, and so, in my mind, these are all aspects related to the electoral electoral dynamics in, in one way or another. Uh huh. And so, the question is, do we, as political scientists, want to start thinking about this more systematically as election-related violence, or are we going to continue to think about, you know, one as terrorism, one as environment or scarcity-related uh, conflict, and another as you know, although the party people will study that kind of right. conflict. Um, and so I think it's important to really s- start thinking about these um, in, a, in a related um, framework. And, and so let me follow up on that. So many people's understanding of political violence in Kenya are related to elections. Um, you know, and, and I, I guess I wonder if we and the West, you know, we tend to have a really high opinion and a really positive opinion about elections and democracy. And I'm just wondering if we need to rethink elections as potentially dangerous institutions, right? What, if any, underlying causes do you think are deserving of more attention? So I'm going to first say that I do not think that we need to reconsider elections. I think they're really important events that need to continue happening. But it's certainly not wrong to look, especially at Kenya's history of elections, and say, oh, well, elections seem to be causing violence. You know, right. three out of six of Kenya's elections, there's been significant violence that has escalated. When I say significant, I mean around a thousand people or more died in the first multi-party elections in 1992, then again around 1997, and then again um, the highest levels around in the post-electoral period of 2007. Right. So certainly elections, there's something about elections that produces violence. But what I'd suggest is that we need to think about elections more, that there's something that happens during elections that creates the trigger for violence. Okay. Right. Um, But what I'm doing in, or what I argue in my book manuscript, is that we need to think of election violence as a process. Okay. Rather than a spontaneous event. Okay. So that if, for example, um, perceptions over electoral fraud um, would just be, are going to be providing the necessary trigger for violence, but that the escalation of violence is really part of a much longer historical process. 
so what that does is then what I suggest is we really need to think about how it is that elites are able to convince ordinary citizens to to fight on their behalf or right. to fight in um, participate in elections right and rather than just seeing it as something that happens automatically or that elites are able to just more or less snap their fingers and citizens are out in the streets protesting and protesting violently and so then when we ask well how is it that the political incentives of elites interact with the the fears and the anxieties of ordinary citizens right that that forces us to think much more deeply about well what is it that citizens are caring about in their everyday lives and how Preach. is it <laughs> and and how is it that politicians are can tap into that and right. how does that align with their own political incentives right um so that gets a lot more complicated it does it um, does though it seems like a worthy endeavor to be you know trying to trying to, to ask and answer those questions no doubt so as as you might know um, the second half of this first season of Ufahamu Africa, we're asking our guests to answer a question that Zachariah Mampili raised in episode 24. Now, he asked six questions, but I'm just going to ask you one. Um, who is the audience, real or imagined, for our intellectual work? So this is something that I, I think is a challenge and I think is a problem. As, mm-hmm. as political scientists trying to make it in our field, mm-hmm. our audience is often the journal editors, our reviewers. Mm-hmm. Who, so other academics. So other academics who are not engaging with the continent. Right. For the most part. Right. So, and I'm then particularly talking about when we send our work to, you know, whether it's comparative politics journals to political science journals. And so we're doing perhaps really in-depth work, engaging with the continent ourselves, you know, in the best of all worlds. And then we're turning around and we're writing and we're sending our work to a very different audience who has no context um, for for the work that we've done. Um, It's essentially, it's it's turning our backs. It's it's collecting and then turning around and sending it somewhere else. Yes. Um, And so I don't, I'm not saying that that needs to change necessarily, but it's certainly a problem or an issue that we need to be much more aware of and what it means when we're out in the field talking to people and I get the question, well, what are what is this work going to do for me? Right. How from your from, from your survey my respondents. respondents. Yeah. And they at least have some expectation that I'm going to write a report that's gonna to go to their politicians. Right. And in my head, all I'm thinking is I need to get a journal article out of this. Right. And I think we need to be much more honest with ourselves and perhaps think about how we can bridge um, the different audiences. So before we go, is there any book that you're reading now or read recently that you found interesting and would encourage our listeners to pick up? So it's being summer, being the end of summer. Um, my recommended book is the novel Dust. 
um, by Yvonne Adiambo Awar. Yes. Um, and I've been meaning to read this for years. And it is on Kenya, and it, the beginning of it takes place um, just as the elect, Kenya's election, 2708 election violence breaks out. Um, but for those who don't know briefly about the novel, it kind of it spans, it goes back in time to um, Kenya's colonial period through the through the lives of of a family, um, and it starts with it starts with a, the, an assassination essentially, um, and goes backwards. But it's one of these novels that you don't have to know anything about Kenya. Yeah. To, to enjoy and it's beautifully written. It's great. Thank you so much. I know that this is a really busy time and that this uh, recent announcement of the um, of the elections being annulled and having to be freshly held has kind of thrown a wrench in, in a lot of um, our thinking about the election and, and I really appreciate you coming and, and talking to us about this. It's my pleasure. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by ALAC and by the Government Department. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.